Welcome to the Celtics Pride Podcast, released every Tuesday on the Celtics blog podcast feed on SB Nation. I'm Adam Motenko, here with me as always, the Celtics Pride team, Josh Motenko, my twin brother. What's up, Josh? What's up? Sharing Celtics fan knowledge since the Chief was uncorking that turnaround jumper. We're in it. What's up, Mike? Mike Minkoff with us also. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going, guys? I, uh, I do have at least one in-person original Big Three game in my, in my eight-year-old self repertoire. So there you go. <laughs> right there I with could, you guys. I could never understand how uh, the Chief, with, his, with those mechanics, hit such a high percentage. Yeah, it was almost like he had the philosophy, instead of Michael Jordan, who would like perfect the turnaround fadeaway, you know, and try to jump as high as he could and fade backwards. Chief was like, I'm just going to put it behind my head and throw it straight up, and it'll be just as unblockable as a fadeaway jumper. And, like, twist his hands in a way around the ball where he's, like, un- literally uncorking it. I don't understand how it didn't spin everywhere. There's not nearly enough verbal appreciation of the awkward lankiness of the <laughs> Celtics teams. <laughs> Robert Parrish, man, he was story. automatic. He was automatic from that short corner along the baseline. I have like memories of that in my sleep sometimes. Um, you sleep oddly, it sounds like. Today on the podcast, we are going to talk about some recent news, the, the national discussion around racial justice and how that relates to the NBA. And then we are going to answer the question, is Danny Ainge the number one front office executive in the NBA? We, we, we've done a deep dive into this with some research, so we'll talk about that. Uh, but to kick us off, um, the NBA has a plan to return, and I'm excited about it. I, you know, we keep going back and forth about what's going to happen, and we still don't really know. Um, there have been players who have uh, expressed reluctance, uh, either because they are concerned about the coronavirus for reasons, reasons that make sense, or they um, have concerns around the um, the bubble situation and what supports may or may not be there. Also makes sense. Or more recently, they have concerns related to the national conversation around racial justice and just what is the right way to express a sense of civil disobedience or protest. Um, So uh, I want to just ask you guys, Josh, you initially, um, what thoughts do you have about about this? What are you what are you noticing about this conversation that that feels important to share here? Um. Well, I'm white, so I'm not going to say too much about it. Uh, but I want to say that I'm, I'm as excited about the NBA returning and the Celtics' first game against the Milwaukee Bucks as I am to see uh, if there's a unified message that these young black male millionaires are going to kind of put together for this really important issue. And um, I think it's kind of an unprecedented time in our history and in, in our society when we have NBA players or rappers and athletes of other sports that are, you know, the, the, the target group of this issue. Um, and you know, the, the victims of this and they're all millionaires with huge platforms. Um, you know, I saw a Dave Chappelle thing that came out recently. You know, he said, if anyone's wondering what the celebrities think, you know, he's not going to comment because the streets speak for themselves. Mm. I think that's important to, to mention, but 
I'm, I'm excited to see if there is a unified message. There's been some Zoom calls with 200 NBA players um, discussing whether to come back or not and how that, what implications that has on the social justice thing, which they believe is bigger than basketball because it concerns their lives and their families. So I'm just super, super curious to see if this is an opportunity that, that they choose to take and, and have a unified message with and how that shows up either on TV if they play or if they don't. Yeah, it's. I, I think you make an interesting point that it's it's a unique time. I I, I don't recall seeing the type of response uh, from corporations, for in the national media, from um, uh, pol- politicians, uh, as well as uh, in the sports world, uh, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the this attempt for racial again another attempt for racial justice. Um, and so it seems like a unique time where. Um, partly because of the pandemic, there, there isn't as much news and these protests are, are gaining more attention. They're working in a way that hasn't, hasn't been the case in the past. Um, and in addition, it's a unique time because I don't think there's ever been a time in the NBA between where the relationship between the NBA Players Association and the league office, the owners and commissioner, where they have had a better relationship and been more aligned. I think that there's definitely some concerns related to what next year looks like in those negotiations, especially if the players decide not to play um, and the the owner the owners decide to enact the force majeure clause, basically meaning that because of an act of God, something like this pandemic, something totally unforeseen, that um, where revenue drops basically goes away, that they have a right to Basically, the owners have a right to tear up the collective bargaining agreement and re, re, restart that negotiation. Adam Silver clearly does not want to do that, but if they're, they're not going to play the rest of these games, then it sounds like that may be a decision that he and the owners make, um, which will definitely not be good for that relationship. And what the optics end up looking like of that, I'm not so sure. I, I certainly don't want to cast any judgment on any player's decision about whether to play or not for any reason. I know that Kyrie has been vocal in calls lately. And, uh, you know, I, I have my own feelings about Kyrie as a Celtics fan, but that does not, I don't want that to play into this because he certainly has a right to express his opinion and, and fear, feel whatever he feels and decide whatever he wants to and advocate for whatever he wants to. Um, but it, it also seems like an interesting time where there is an opportunity to partner with the league that hasn't always been there to give voice uh, in support of this movement. Um, and, and that could look a ton of different ways that I don't even want to get into speculating about, but, but I'm just kind of, I'm curious to see what, what ends up happening here um, and, and just feeling in support of the fact that there is momentum around this, um, this issue. Mike, I, I want to see what, what thoughts you have here as well. No, well, I certainly agree with that that last thought, and and very much in support of the momentum we're seeing, um, and and you know some of the strongest signals historically in this country for a true move towards uh, improved racial equality. Um, I, I just it's a deeply complex issue, and there are so many factors that the NBA players are having to grapple with as they decide uh, whether or not they want to or feel safe and secure to return to play. Um, I, I agree with you both that it, it potentially presents a really um, 
unique opportunity with a lot of uh, potential for a, a very powerful and amplified message. But, um, you know, I, I respect uh, and appreciate the, the many, many variables that the players are, are probably <laughs> trying to grapple with and, and think through and figure out how they can engage in their personal lives, with their families, uh, with their professional aspirations, and of course, with their societal uh, concerns um, with the, with the, the uh, social justice and racial inequality uh, challenges that, have, that are at the forefront these days. Um, so it will be interesting to see how things evolve and interesting to continue to, to identify opportunities to kind of support, uh, those aspects where it's most productive for, you know, certainly myself to do so, um, as I feel so. And I imagine you too as well. Yeah. And we've made a conscious choice to talk about this on the podcast as, as, cause it feels relevant to the NBA, to the Celtics, um, to the sport. Um, which doesn't always feel comfortable. And that's part of this. Uh, I just want to sort of acknowledge that, you know, protest is not about increasing comfort. Part of the, the purpose of it is um, to, to raise awareness of something. And sometimes that, that causes people to feel uncomfortable. And, and Mike, you were saying earlier that, and I, which I agree with, that, that what's most important is to have a national conversation on this as well as local dialogue to, to better understand one another, what our experiences are, um, so, that, so that we can understand uh, where everybody's coming from and create solutions together. That's really the only way that this is gonna work. Okay, so let's, let's shift gears here and get a little deeper into basketball. Uh, let's talk about this, this topic about Danny Ainge as a front office executive, as a, a longtime Celtics fan. I know that I've been following him. I've thought about him as a, uh, an, a, one of the better drafters of executives in the NBA. He gets, he's, he's made some phenomenal trades um, and he gets a lot of credit as somebody that other, other executives are afraid to trade with. But this question about where does he rank as a top current executive in the NBA. So these are primary basketball decision makers. Uh, we wanted to dig deeper into that conversation and uh, do a little research and, and see if we could come up with an answer. Um, so Josh, I, I wanna ask you, because this, this question was really raised by you. Um, and I understand that it comes from some things that you've been thinking about as a coach or in terms of um, play, uh, uh, team creation and, and skill sets of players and things like that. Can you share more about what thoughts you had that prompted this, this topic? Well, Adam, you know, I've been coaching college basketball for nine years. I've you know, recruited and been a recruiting coordinator for teams that I've been on. So I've thought a lot about how to make up a good team, how to put together good chemistry, what types of players in terms of their talents or their physical attributes, uh, do we want to have or what works, um, and that, that was spawned way back in like summers in New Hampshire, you know, pulling out our basketball cards and being fake GMs when we were, you know, 15, 16 years old and doing drafts with all our basketball cards, putting together rosters. And, you know, so you and I, when, when real GM used to have, um, you know, it used to be the only place you could find like what are the transactions online that, that different GMs have made, you know, we were kind of into that back in the day. And so I, mean, I, you know, I've been thinking about. Just, it I just want to jump now. in. 
Josh, yeah. I, my recollection is more about dominating you on the court in one-on-one than trading cards and making teams. You're talking about the little the little Nerf hoop court in my bedroom. Oh, well, I feel like that. I feel like this is not going to go in a productive direction. <laughs> definitely the Nerf hoop in the bedroom. It, it definitely sounded like we were going to uh, make the house collapse because of how intense that was. But but on the outside court as well. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, you know, it's been almost 20 years now since Danny Ainge started. He, he started back in 2003 as the lead executive and, and, uh, Celtics blog started in 2004. So the blog has been on a similar trajectory as Danny Ainge kind of, in, and has been following him. I mean, that, that those errors are aligned and it seems like as a Celtics fan, maybe for all the listeners, it feels like Danny Ainge is the best GM out there. And we had to kind of sit down and think, well, is is that actually true? What is that based on? How should we evaluate that? Who's in the conversations? Because there's some legends, and then there's some others who are kind of more up and coming and only you know recent. So, yeah, Adam, you want to share how we kind of broke it all down? Yeah, I know, Josh. You were thinking about winning percentage, best or worst moves, um, perceived fear factor from other GMs, um, I, and we took different approaches. So we're going to talk about our research metrics first. Then we're going to give you our list of names, as well as some honorable mentions. Then we're going to go into a deep dive on Danny and, um, and what, what, uh, what he's done and hasn't done, what we think about that. We'll then compare that to other GMs. And then at the end, we'll reveal who wins and answer this question of whether Danny Ainge is the number one front office executive in the NBA. So, um, Mike, uh, why don't you share what, what metrics you use in, uh, to do this research and how you were thinking about evaluating the question sure so i was well my first my first metric was to just look at all the nba teams literally just pull up web page that had all the teams on it and say which ones are not crap <laughs> we got rid of crap right away uh the ones that are clearly managed poorly so the knicks were never in the conversation for example um but going from there looked at you know, Danny Ainge has been GM for 16 seasons um, for the Celtics. So looking for GMs within that time frame and that are still current, but using the duration of their tenure as kind of, it's a relevant starting point. It's not good enough if they had one or two good years. From my perspective, they needed to do it over, um, you know, at least like seven or eight years and, ha- and have demonstrated track record of success. I looked at whether or not they had won any titles as an executive, uh, the frequency with which their teams make the playoffs and how deep into the playoffs they go. I looked at their trades, um, particularly focusing on their their best, uh, highest reward or return trades. Um, looked at some of their draft history, um, whether they ever won executive of the year, the coaches that they've hired, personnel they brought on board, and then some of the biggest free agents that they were able to sign uh, as indicative of you know how attractive the franchise that they were running ultimately was. So those were those were kind of the main categories of information I was looking at. And then you know there are other variables uh, that obviously weigh in when thinking of it, such as you know the perceived reputation of the GM with other GMs, how, how they're interacted with by other GMs, um, you know, the type of culture that they, they set with, with their team, things of that nature. 
And I took a somewhat overlapping but slightly different approach where I, I like to triangulate my, my research. So I, I wanted to, um, to do sort of a lit review, a total, you know, not very good one. Um, and there's, a, there's lots of articles about like who's the best GM that talk about best and worst uh, moves, but it's like totally anecdotal. Um, and so there is actually some research on um, expectations from draft picks. So I decided to look at Danny Age's draft picks relative to what expectations should be. Unfortunately, um, there isn't solid research comparing GMs based on things like win share or that sort of a thing. But I'll get into a little bit more about that. Um, and then I wanted to have a quad quantitative piece. So I thought through what are the five ways that executives can influence teams. And those five are the draft, trade, free agency, hiring of coaches and front office executives. And then I felt like luck is on that list um, because it just seems like that has played out when, when I've, looked, I've looked at um, the opportunities that certain executives have had and um, ways that they've been able to capitalize on those opportunities. Luck has been a factor. Um, and, um, and, and I looked at all of Danny Ainge's um, um, transactions uh, um, as well as uh, a slightly less cursory or more cursory look at, at um, other GMs in the running um, and uh, came up with just a separate list. So, so um, yeah, so I came up with a separate list just based on um, moves that uh, of all sorts that people made, that different GMs made. And then I also did a quantitative piece where I, gave based on those five influencing factors draft trade free agency hiring coaches and luck um i gave these gms either a two or a one or a zero and then calculated the total number of points for each of those um, so that allowed me to have a more quantitative rank order and i'm kind of mishmashing it all together here so um any other important pieces to talk about related to metrics or research methods here no, I'm I'm done with research methods methods class for today. Yeah, there really isn't a lot of good information out there that I was able to find that takes an analytical approach to comparing. Um, so anybody that wants to write a PhD, this could be fun. Um, let's talk about who's on the list. Um, first and foremost, who made the list of the top five or seven that you guys have? In in not in a ranked order. Josh, who did you have first? Well, so you you have kind of two lists, I feel like. Um, there's the legends, right? R.C. Buford, who, along with Greg Popovich, built what he built over 20 years in San Antonio. Um, Pat Riley, who has been an executive for uh, with the Miami Heat for almost 20 years as well, if not more. No, more than that. Um, and, and then Danny Ames. Those are kind of the three guys that have been doing it for you know the longest. And I would put into the kind of legendary um, class. I would say that you could make an argument that Bob Myers may have moved into that um, because he, you know, he built the Warriors from scratch. And, and then after that, you know, you're looking at, you know, maybe some also some, some other guys, you know, I, I wonder if you guys would have the same guys that I have. Well, I've got Danny Ainge on that list also. Mike, who else do you have? Uh, I have R.C. Buford and slash Popovich. I, I wrote it as R.C. Buford, but I don't actually know where the separation is there. So I think you just have to treat them as a as a 
collective right. unit. So besides um, besides the guys I just mentioned, I had Presti. Oh, okay. I had Daryl Morey. Those guys were not on my list. And well, I they had, were on mine as well. And I had Masai Ujiri. Yeah, Ujiri is on that list. I also had LeBron James and Rich Paul. Not sure if you guys had what? them on your list as executives. I, I disagree with that for multiple reasons. What? Do you want, you do you want, right to, defend, do you want to defend yourself first, Adam? I mean, or do you, do you want me to tell you why it's a terrible decision that you made? It's obviously a little tongue-in-cheek here, but clearly they're, they're pulling the strings over there in L.A. with the, uh, um, the trade for Anthony Davis. Uh, that was clearly orchestrated by the two of them. Rich Paul has more power in the NBA than many executives. So this, you know, the LA thing, I think that's kind of obvious that, that uh, Palinka is not really making all of the decisions there. And LeBron has always been a huge factor in these decisions. Um, definitely in Cleveland, he was, I, I think, running that show. I, I, I totally respect David Griffin, but <laughs> it was up to LeBron. A lot of that was up to LeBron. And I think he ended up bringing players, his sway ended up, um, shifting some of the, the decisions that the front office makes in Miami, in Cleveland, uh, and now clearly in L.A. So obviously they're not executives. We're not going to continue talking about them on this list. But um, the amount of power they have, I think, is a lot. So <laughs> I wanted to raise that. Okay, wait a second. You're, you're not making the argument that, that they are better than Danny Ainge as a GM, that LeBron James is, should, is, is arguably the number one GM. Compared to I Danny put Ainge. them on the list, and in my quantitative analysis, I evaluated them based on how, uh, like, the, their trades and the free agency. Like, I okay, gave so LeBron listen. Rich Paul a two in for free agency. They got a higher number than anybody else. Nobody else got a two for free agency. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's so ridiculous on so many fronts. It's hard. It's hard to even have a conversation about it. <laughs> So I'm not going yeah, to. Listen, we don't have to. <laughs> the, the I'm, not, I'm not is, going to. <laughs> the, the line is like Spurs fans could make an argument that R.C. Buford is a better GM than Danny Ainge. Okay. Miami Heat fans can make the same argument about Pat Riley. I think Raptors fans could be making the same argument about Masai Ujiri. If there's other people on that list, Bob Myers, I mean, do you think the Rockets have a an end? Do you think the Rockets could say the same about Daryl Morey? He's a I mean, so here's than, who, here's who made age. my sort of my finalist list: Pop and RC, Bob Myers, Pat Riley, Danny Ainge, Sam Presti, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey. There were some other players that felt more fringe that I was like thinking, should I be considering them? And I know that you've got some of those names as well, Josh. Who else was on your list? These so are, are John, Horst. John, John Horst. John Horst, and and here's why. I think he, he leads the honorable mentions, I think. Um, with Milwaukee? Yeah, with Milwaukee. He's, he's been a GM for three years, since June 16, 2017. I think that when you look at a list like this, recency bias happens. We want to know, like Pat Riley hasn't won much recently. In the last three years, since John Horace has been the GM for Milwaukee, the Spurs, the Rockets, the Cavs, and the Blazers have all been to the conference finals only once. Like, I want to know who's been to the conference finals and in the finals in the last three years. What does the recency bias say? So we're, we're talking Spurs, Rockets, Cavs, Blazers. Then the people who've gone more than once are one, two, three, four teams. The Celtics, the Raptors, the Bucks, and the Warriors. Only four teams in the last three years have been to the conference finals more than once. So John Horst is in that conversation, in my opinion. Um, 
the issues with him, I mean, he fired, the good things he did, he fired Jason Kidd uh, and hired Mike Budenholzer. You guys would say that's a win, right? Yeah, definitely. Yep. Okay, so Malcolm Brogdon recently on his podcast uh, talked about how his agent was stalling once he fell to the second round and trying to get him to Milwaukee because of Jason Kidd because he'd be able to learn from Kidd. Hmm. And so his agent actually negotiated the buck. And then, and then he had to convince Milwaukee, John Horace specifically, to, to take him uh, with that pick and was like, you know, trust me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out. This is a favor. And they did. So, I mean, you could say firing Jason Kidd was good. I agree it's good. Budenholzer's better. But, you know, Horst didn't necessarily make that move with Brogdon. Um, and he overpaid, uh, he avoided overpaying Jabari Parker. Very good. Um, Ilyasova, uh, he, you know, he signed him to a contract for $21 million. I think that that's either a wash or a negative. Uh, then he got rid of him. The Brook the Brook Lopez signing I think was really good, three point four million a year. Um, Eric Bledsoe, I mean you can go into that. Stuff, I mean but let's he didn't not draft. Like, he, this is an honorable mention. Why are we, why are we talking about every move he made? <laughs> well, I, I think it's worth. I don't think he's on either of your lists, right? So I wanted to, yeah, but, to portray yeah. why he's there. So I'll move on. Yeah. Okay. Another guy on the list we talked about last week on the pod, the redhead, Lawrence Frank. Um, you know, he basically built the current Clippers team right now. He, yeah, he was on my honorable mention list as well. Uh, he, he's made some good moves and, and tried to, uh, done, done a fair bit to reverse the years of uh, neg- neglectful GMing uh, by, by Doc Rivers, who uh, reminded everyone that he's a really, really good coach, uh, a fantastic coach when he's not uh, making, putting bad rosters together as the GM. <laughs> Right. So, wait, so after, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So after Horst, who's in that list of guys who've made conference finals with their teams in the last three years, the recency bias list, you, I think that Lawrence Frank, who's also only been there for three years since 2017, um, in the top executive role, because um, so I, I think that he needs to be in that conversation too, because they would have, I think, gone to at least the, the Western Conference finals. Um, and if you just look but, at the way that team was set up, you know, I mean, he's, that he's done is... some amazing things in, in terms of in terms of the core. Not even Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. The rest. Yeah, I mean of that that's what I'm that looking at. That's what makes that team a contender. And who actually made that decision? It's not like he made that trade. That was a, more of a free agency related trade, and they both the players decided to go there together. He just got lucky. With that's why I'm saying if you don't even talk about Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, take that out of the equation. I think he needs to be in his honorable mention list at least. Wow. With what he's okay. done since 2017, when when he had, you know, the JJ Redick, Blake Griffin, Chris Paul team that that yeah, okay. you know, I think, who, who I think getting out of that Blake contract and the Chris yeah. Paul situation and, and putting together such a fun competitive team with you know Gallinari and and Tobias Harris and then that Tobias Harris trade like those were I mean they milked like six different GMs in the course of two years. And I think Frank deserves some credit there. I, one quick comment on Horst. Um, I do, I do think he get you know, this, and this is why all of these guys deserve to be honorable mentions that the, the leash is so short uh, on their tenure so far, but Horst did miss the mark, I think in extending blood. So, and not extending Brogdon. And I, exactly. I, I think, I think that can't be ignored. Um, 
And I got to say about about um, um, Lawrence Frank, I don't I the trade he made for those two players, I think were great trades for the other team. So I yeah, like, that's but, on my list. I don't know why, that, that's, that's one of the reasons I love that Presti is on my list. Me too. I, I I agree, but I don't know that it was a bad trade for them. Just because it was a great trade for the other team. I considered whether David Griffin should be on this list. Josh, did you consider? I think you did also. Yeah, absolutely. He's an honorable mention for sure. I really like what he's done in New Orleans. Yeah. You know, obviously yeah. he he was involved um, in Cleveland, um, but he had kind of a a gap. What was it? Since 2017, between 2017 and June 2019, he you know was not an executive, and then all of a sudden he comes back on the radar with the Pelicans and. Um, yeah, they had the number one pick. So let's remove Zion from the equation. I really like Jackson Hayes. I really like Frank Jackson, who's starting to play well. Um, I, I think that they did a really good job bringing in veterans like J.J. Redick and um, Derek Favors to help with culture. Um, so are you giving him credit for, credit for trading Anthony Davis for the Lakers players and picks? Yeah, because I, I also think he did a good job of saying no to Kyle Kuzma and yes to Brandon Ingram. You know, um, and and manipulating that trade the way the way he did with the picks he got as well yeah, from that trade. The fact that there was literally no other team that was going to trade for him and they got the haul they did was pretty good. <laughs> He's getting two way players and uh, creating positive culture. Um, yeah, he's totally shifted that front office, and and he's gotten the ownership to think completely differently yeah. about investing resources in ensuring that they can be a good team and building up that front office in a way that um, looks very different. I mean, all all of what we're discussing now has to be supported by ownership, and and if you don't have a good ownership group, then you're not going to be able to be a good GM, um, and that that team went from one that had one of the worst ownership situations to one of the better ones. Um, in, and I think he had a lot to do with that. I, can, and, I have one more honorable mention that I don't. Wait, wait, wait. Before, oh, yeah, okay. let's just finish let's, with, go ahead. Yeah, let's finish up on this one. Uh, David Griffin, who, do you guys know the, the only player left over from the roster that he had, that he inherited? Zion? No, I don't. Um, Former Celtic. Oh, Etwan. Etwan Moore. Moore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I believe. I'm not sure, but I believe he's the only guy <laughs> remaining on that roster. And and Etwan Moore is is, is a solid vet. It definitely, know, maybe true. Even just recognizing that and keeping him, uh, I think is a positive for for Griffin. This has been another guess that Josh presents as a fact on the Celtics Pride podcast. Uh, Josh, do you give David Griffin credit for what happened in Cleveland, given the fact that he had LeBron and one of the worst owners in the league? Do you know how hard it is to be the GM when LeBron James is your player? You know how hard that must be to still yeah, do slight, your job? and It's slightly less hard than being the coach. Yeah, but it's more difficult than any other GM position. <laughs> I, give, okay. I give him credit for seemingly – being able to manage what clearly was a, a fractious relationship between LeBron and Kyrie. And it, it seemed like he had a very positive relationship with Kyrie, all considered, um, which I, I think is very commendable based on other other things we've seen with Kyrie at other teams. So, so and, yeah. and Daryl Griffin, I think, epitomizes the, uh, a type of skill that you guys haven't mentioned in your metrics at all, which is relationship skills. 
let's not forget like what these players can be like as prima donnas sometimes. And, you know, you need a lot of, a lot of GMs and coaches fail because they're great tacticians, they're great coaches, they're great executives, but they don't have the relationship building skills to, to be able to manage these really delicate situations sometimes and to be able to set their own ego aside for, to allow the players egos to shine the brightest, you know, Dell Griffin remains in charge and is a good, is good at his job, the different actual components of the job, um, as well as being able to manage huge personalities. And um, I'm sure that's helped him now that he's got Zion, who's uh, seems like a pleasure to be around, you know, and doesn't really have a lot of ego stuff that needs to be dealt with. And um, I have a feeling there that, that Griffin has kind of set things up well for him coming in to, to become what he could become. Yes, I totally agree if applied to David Griffin. If you're talking about Daryl Griffin, Griffin. <laughs> Dr. Duncanstein, then I would say different things about him. Um, I also had uh, Dennis Lindsay on my honorable mention list, just someone I was thinking about. I like that Utah team. He had a, a difficult situation losing, um, uh, you know, the guy on our team now, COVID brain. Um, but uh, Gordon Hayward? Yes, Gordon Hayward. Donovan Mitchell obviously was a phenomenal draft pick at, I think it was 12, maybe it was 13. Um, I like some of the signings he's had, and, and he's been able to keep that team competitive uh, in a difficult market. I don't think a lot of people want to sign in Utah. Mike, you had another another um, exec you wanted to mention. Yeah, I'm, and I'm curious uh, to get your guys' reaction given, given the last uh, year or two of moves, but Sean Rooks. Sean Marks. Uh, Sean Marks. Sorry, Sean Rooks. Yep. Old Sean Rooks Dallas played Maverick. For, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Sweet headband. Uh... COVID brain, as Adam says. COVID brain. That's yeah, right. yeah. This Sean... is my thinky brain, right, Josh? <laughs> yeah. Sean Marks uh, of the Brooklyn Nets. Um, I mean, he did a he took a team with basically no assets, completely with Kenny Atkinson, who should not be diminished, of course, um, completely helped change the culture there brought in lots of good players, uh, you know, later draft picks like Karis LeVert um, that were, he was injured, but was otherwise high value. Uh, who's, who's proven out as a good player, but, you know, took, took in uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, who had been on a few different teams before, at least Detroit. And I thought one other, right. Um, but anyway, compiled a nice team that ultimately proved attractive for uh, to, superstars uh one coming off a very serious injury obviously kevin durant and then one with a checkered history at his other stops and kyrie irving so how much credit he gets for that i'm not sure uh but he checked off a lot of boxes along the way and obviously his tenure is not long enough for the the book to be written as to where he ultimately will will rate out I had him on my list also. I'm not sure whether I want to give credit for the, the recent superstar signings of Kyrie and Kevin Durant, but that, that we'll, we'll see how, what happens with that. It's, I mean, it's such an, I, we need to add DeAndre Jordan to that because uh, yep. it's hard to say no to that, but it's also questionable in some ways, and it definitely shifts the culture and the trajectory that he had been building for that team. Um, and I'm not sure that you can actually give him the credit for recruiting them. He just he created the space and the opportunity. You get some credit for that, but player empowerment, baby. Anybody else that needs to be mentioned as an honorable mention? 
Yeah, don't you guys like what you know Denver has done, what Tim Connolly's done over there? You know, imagine if they had chosen Nurkic over Jokic. Uh, you know, I'm sure Jokic at what, like 27th or something like that. I'm saying they had both of those players. They were developing both bigs and were going to only pick one, and I, both uh, were good. I like, and they got rid of Nurkic so that Jokic yep. could start. I like That's a lot right. of what they've done. I really didn't like the Jamal Murray signing extension. The extension, yeah, but he's a good player, and he if he yeah, but he's defense, he's not he's not gonna live up to that contract. He has no chance, I don't think, or low low and, percentage chance. And that and in a market like Denver, you can't make that type of miss. Jamal Murray yeah. is owed the fifth most money guaranteed in the league, one hundred and seventy four million. So right. you, then you let you you trade him like they did with the. The other promising wing that they had, whose name I'm blanking on, to the Timberwolves this past offseason, like you know, you got you got to get rid of those guys if you're not going to sign them. And they're deciding that he's going to be one of their top guys, so they're going to sign him. And you know what? They, and, and the small market teams have to make those gambles sometimes. That's actually something. That's actually a piece of this that we I don't think any of us really factored into our metrics as we as we shift to the the real list. <laughs> Well, I got a couple um, others. His, his contract. I think we've got enough. All right, Josh, names. who are their names? Yeah, Let's run, run really real quick. quickly. <laughs> I mean, come on. If you're a Sixers fan, I think that you'd, no, you'd be Elden somewhat Brand happy with bad, what Elton Brand Elden has done. Terrible, <laughs> terrible. All right, next. If, next, you're, a six, next. You're, if, you're, if you're a Sixers you're fan, Indiana. you want... Wait, wait, no, wait. If you're a Sixers fan, you want Sam Hinkie on this list. And we're talking about current ones, so it's moot. Go on. Indiana, sure. Okay. Yeah, we apologize to Sam Hinkie. We also apologize to two-time executive of the year, Jerry Colangelo. Um, Kevin Pritchard if, I, I has done a great know. job creating a culture in Indiana that's super positive and, and has some talent there, which is difficult to do. Um, I think he's done a good job. Yeah, he's done a good job. And are if, we sure and you are not a that? front office executive, Josh? You're talking, you're talking like an NBA coach talks about other coaches, where they're just glowing in their remarks on, how, on every coach. I mean, Adam, Donnie Nelson has took, taken Frankenstein oh, Dirk Nowitzki and turned him into Luka Doncic and oh, a team man. that is, is a, a real strong playoff contender, I think, in the next few years. All right. Are there? The Mavs, the Mavs I think there's only there. three teams you haven't mentioned yet. Would you like to cross them off your list? <laughs> I'm good now. Okay. So, are you guys really saying that Sam Presti's in the, in your top six or seven or so? Sam Presti made uh, the final he, he list. May, he may or may not be even higher than that one. Which includes Sam Presti, Daryl Morey, RC Pop, Masai Ujiri, Denny Ainge, Bob Myers, Pat Riley, in no particular order. That's the list I think that we're now talking about. I think Morey's. Uh, I mean, Presti has made it. Um, some moves recently that are worth discussing. So, um, but first, let's dig in deeper to Danny Ainge, one-time executive of the year. Um, I'd love to talk about this as a group. So I'm thinking maybe we break it up by, um, maybe we start with trades or we start with draft. What, what, Mike? What do you think makes the most sense here? Let's let's start with uh, let's go with trade first. Okay. So um, Danny Ainge has a – so he's been the executive. He started in 2005, Three. I believe. started Three? in May of Three. 2003. Mike, give me what you have here because I'm searching for my trade notes here. For trades? Yeah. Okay. So I have marked one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of Danny's greatest hits on the trade front. Yep. I've got uh, a number of those as well. Keep going. I want to uh, hear those. 
Starting June 28th, 2007, Danny Ainge traded Jeff Green, Wally Serbiak, Delonte West, and 2008 second-round draft pick to the super to the then and forever Seattle Supersonics for Ray Allen and Glenn Big Baby Davis. And then, one month and three days later, on July 31st, 2007, he made a... 23-year-old Mike very happy by trading Ryan Gomes, Gerald Green, Al Jefferson, Theo Ratliff, Sebastian Telfair, 2009 first-round pick, and another 2009 first-round pick to the Minnesota Timberwolves for Kevin Garnett. Um, Thank you, Kevin McHale. Thank you, Kevin yeah, McHale. Exactly. Forever a Celtic. Um, this is still, one area I'm not where sure how that trade was better than Andrew Bynum, but shh, I never said that. Um, this, we all love how Mark plays into it. So yeah, uh, and, and and Mike, that that Garnett trade never would have happened if they had not gotten Ray Allen first. So yeah. that's why that you're, he's on that list for you. I mean, look, we all know what Jeff Green became. We all know what Wally Serbiak was. Delonte West was a scrappy, fun player. We've talked about him in recent podcasts. Even if it's just trading those three for Ray Allen, that's a really freaking good trade. Um, yeah, and what fact, we know Jeff Green became was the Memphis number one pick that we may get this year. Yeah, so that's we're getting there. Uh, so July 12, <laughs> 2013, traded that same Kevin Garnett uh, and Paul Pierce and Jason Terry and DJ White. Uh, and a first-round pick, a second-round pick for a big bag of yuck from the Nets and three first-round picks and then a first-round pick swap that obviously became Jason Tatum and um, Jalen Brown, James Young, who we won't talk about, and <laughs> Romeo Langford uh, via the, the subsequent trade, which is also included here when we traded down back from the 2017 first overall pick that became Markel Fultz uh, to get that Jason Tatum pick at number three and the pick that became Romeo Langford. Um, January 12, 2015. Can I just ask, are, are we extending this to, to what happened with some of those picks afterward? I have that was not my metric of the, okay. of the trade for the most can, part. Can I jump in with this so so that they traded the 2018 yeah. first round draft pick, which was Colin Sexton? Yep. Um, they used that in the Kyrie Irving deal. Yes. Where they got the the um, yeah, and so um, which you know say what you will about Kyrie's time in Boston at the time to get a star player like that using that Colin Sexton pick and. Um, and and uh, Jay Crowder, Isaiah Thomas, Ante Zizic, um, that that was I, I mean I, that was not a big haul that we sent away. That was not a tremendous amount of value, even with the way it worked out. I look back on it and I'm kind of like I don't know if I would do I don't I probably would not do it again. But I don't feel like uh, losing Kyrie in free agency without much in return is is. Uh, without anything in return is is a huge loss. I don't miss Colin Sexton. I don't miss Jay Crowder. I don't miss Isaiah Thomas. Um, so he you. used that portion How of the... Uh, you. He used that portion of the Brooklyn deal um, wisely, I, I feel like. No, it was obviously the right trade, but how dare you besmirch Isaiah Thomas's name? Look, he was he was done dirty. I think we all knew that, but... 
It was the right strategic move by Danny. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so uh, um, while we're on the top, while we're, real quick, while we're on the topic of Danny doing people dirty, you know, Antoine Walker once said Danny Ainge is a snake. Is that true? Would Isaiah Thomas say the same? Maybe. Um, I, th- I think, well, Isaiah Thomas would probably acknowledge that Danny said nobody would never be traded. Uh, but Danny, I have worried at times, and, and this is getting into like a reputation and relationship piece of the GM puzzle. I have worried at times that Danny's cold-blooded approach to trades versus, let's say, a team like the Mavericks, who just would under no circumstance let Dirk go. I, I see that as basically organizational branding. Danny is saying, we will trade anyone at any time if it's best for the long-term franchise. You know, Sentimental value be damned. And the Mavericks said, if you're an all-time on our team, we're gonna, you stay here. You don't go anywhere. And I wonder, have wondered if players, how much players look at that and would pick, you know, an organization like the Mavericks over the Celtics or would favor an organization like the Mavericks over the Celtics. Yeah, so, when, you go, when you go in there and Danny Ainge points up at the rafters and says, you know, that's how we get those. And you go into the Dallas Mavericks arena and they point up to the rafters and at the one, you know, it's, you want to go to where they're going to win and do whatever it takes to win, I would think. I think it will depend for different players. I just I've always I've I think that's something that people that players probably take into account one way or the other when thinking about the Celtics and Danny Ainge. And I would think when you're looking at Danny Ainge, you would maybe take the he's a snake comment and take some points away from him, or you would maybe add some points to him, you know, because you know that that's what it takes to win. So it's it's interesting. Let's continue though. So uh, just a couple, I'll, I'll be quicker with these, a couple other trades. Uh, the three-team trade um, that sent Jeff Green to Memphis, I got that Memphis pick in 2015. Uh, just unbelievable. I, don't, I still don't know how Danny did that. Um, two, another 2015 pick, a three-team trade, where we traded Marcus Thornton, a first-round pick. Uh, this is where we got Isaiah Thomas in the first place, um, sneaking him in just before the trade deadline. Yeah, and basically that, a number one for IT. That was a steal. Yeah, it was a total steal. And then IT led us to the playoffs two years and was just... he. I mean, IT returned the Celtics back to relevance and prominence. He was... Wait, are we, are we, are we saying that Danny Ainge knew that Isaiah Thomas was going to be as good as he became? Because I don't think he knew at all. I think he was bringing Isaiah Thomas in because he was getting a bunch of solid role players, Jay Crowder types, Marcus Smart types, and you know had a team full of that. Kind of like Miami Heat type players, hard workers. I, I think he thought Isaiah Thomas was going to be a super scorer off the bench oh, in a six-man role, yes. which is what right. he was in the very beginning. And even right. that for a number one pick on the contract that he had, which was totally reasonable for that. Um, a aggressive contract. It was, yep. I mean, which Isaiah signed, so it is what it is. But it decreased in value each year. It's crazy. Um, I... I, I Mike, you haven't mentioned my favorite trade, which I, I, is... I was just oh, going to yeah. say, I did not include, and so I don't know if it's the same one, but I, 
do you want to say it or should my I? My favorite trade is trading away a Doc Rivers yeah, as a coach who was not interested in staying on to coach the team for a number one pick to the Clippers. Yeah. That's who else has say. traded, has gotten value back on a trade with a coach? Yeah, no, it, I mean, it was brilliant. And then, so I guess while we're, while we're on there, I think Danny Ainge has one of the best if track records of coaching hires during his tenure. And that, well, that before we move on to that, yeah. you can't forget that he traded Terry Rozier at a second round. No, pick I'm not Kevin counting Walker. That. That, that, doesn't second round pick. that doesn't count. I know it's more of a free agent, move, free agent but I signing. like it. And you got to swindle Jordan to, to do that. Um, even a trade like giving, like trading Perkins away for Jeff green and a number one, even in hindsight, I mean, at the time it felt like, you know, the, the, the statement that Doc and the team uh, had that I, that I loved, which is we never lost with that group. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah you, you shouldn't have traded him away. But, it, but Green, he, he oh. underperformed. Um, but it's Don't not do like it, Adam. you're going to regret, Adam. Perkins, Don't do it, Adam. I love Perk. He was not an amazing player. He was a strong role player, but he was he – was, no, and he, he was going to want to get paid. It was paid. a questionable thing. He didn't want to get paid. It was right to get rid of Perk then. Um, and they know. got a number one for it. I, I don't honestly, remember who they, who they got in the draft for that. Honestly, what hurt them the most there was that was the – wasn't that the lockout year? And then Nanad Kristich signed in Russia. Kristich was oh, going to yeah. be actually a solid player for us. If we had Kristich and uh, Jeff Green the next year, we, we would have fared better than just having uh, – the the figurine that is Jeff Green on the basketball court. So Danny, that's uh, a yes. thing that no, Danny no. Ainge, that's a thing Danny Ainge does is he he does a really good job of evaluating when to get rid of a guy via trade before you are going to have to give him the contract that the market says he deserves, which you think is not worth it for that guy. And yeah. he's done it on a small scale with guys like Rozier, Evan Turner. He's done it on a larger scale with guys like Antoine Walker the first time around. Um, you know, he knew that Walker was going to deserve a max, and the market said that he should get one based on other players who were maxed out at the time. And he knew that Walker, two three years from then, was not going to deserve be deserving of that contract. Or so, at that moment, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, at that moment, I think it was legitimately debatable. And, and if you were on Celtics blog at the time, you were either on one side of the line or the other, and it was kind of split down the middle 50 50 um but i i think that's an under undervalued component of this that that danny Ainge has really perfected as much as i hated the perk trade yeah from that perspective it was the right time to get rid of him based on the contract that he would have needed yeah and and that connects to what i was starting to say during the honorable mention uh conversation but what we didn't don't have really as in our metrics here is the negotiation the contract negotiation and you know, assigning correct value at the correct time. Mm-hmm. So he does that on the trade front. He's also done that in re-signing free agents. So we were talking about the Jamal Murray contract before. Compare that to Jalen Brown's extension. Or look at the extension that he ended up giving Marcus Smart, which could have, like, you know, he played hardball. Would you rather have Marcus Smart or Jamal Murray? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, for obviously biased, but... I've gone back to that draft on, on numerous occasions, and it's... I, Murray was another guy that I was definitely interested in. I'm happy with Smart. I mean, you could argue Murray's no, better. No, no, but... Murray and Brown were the same draft. Oh, 
Smart right. Smart was with Aaron Gordon and um Ooh, I don't, well, okay. we're, we're getting into draft stuff, which we're about to get to. What, yeah. Let's finish up. Mikey, we're okay. going to say talk about his coaching hires. Well, I mean, it was it's two. It's Doc Rivers. In 05. And, and 05, 04. Uh, and Brad Stevens. And yep. I think 14. So I didn't 13. Actually that one, 13. And that's it. Um, those are pretty good coaches. They're still yep, two and, of the top coaches in the NBA. And in terms that's of this front up. His front You're office. hiring for, for consistency with those jobs, too. You're hiring knowing that you need a coach. I mean, look, a lot of these teams fire coaches every year or every other year. It's not it's, – it's the most common job to get fired from possibly in the world. You know, so um, to have a long-standing Josh, relationship with coaches is, 2. is really 4 seasons is 2.4 seasons. 2.4 seasons is the average tenure of an the NBA average. coach. Yeah, what happens so, when you remove Greg Popovich from the average? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Josh, that, that he's hiring these guys for longevity and, 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 that, um, and that stability matters for a team. And chemistry. It's all, it all goes into to being an executive who understands about chemistry and you know got that from Red Auerbach, the, the legend. Um, in addition, his front office has had the likes of Daryl Morey who served three years as SVP of operations for the Celtics. I, I expected more from Ryan McDonough, who was is himself a GM after. The esteemed Ryan McDonough <laughs> with an excellent tenure in Phoenix. I mean, he got uh, Booker and uh, DeAndre Aiden to show for it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to loud his his uh, success there. He's, he didn't make this list. Even Josh's honorable mention list, he didn't make it. Um, Mike Zarin obviously is, is well-respected and, um, somehow we continue to keep him like uh, he's one of the smarter, um, more, most well-respected, uh, like assistant GMs or front office execs, um, uh, up and coming. And for some reason, I never see his name on the lists of like people to watch or the people that are getting tons of interviews every year. And I don't understand why. And the only reason that I can come up with is, I think Danny's paying him well to retain him and has maybe even made some promise that whenever he retires, maybe Zarin takes over or something like that. I don't, I don't know. Any inside knowledge of any of this? Those are bold words. I think that is something I worry about sometimes, you know, is what, who, who takes over when Danny Ainge is gone. He had some heart issues the last couple of years. So, um, you know, that's one thing that, that we were, talking about in our text message threads or group texts back when when Danny had some of those health issues the last couple of years you know and there's a fear of of what happens after that because we have a long-standing tradition here in Boston of 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 Celtics pride and Danny continues that and it's really important for the pride component of the Celtics tradition to be carried on um, I would think that you'd be looking at guys like Mike Zarin. I laugh as I think as I think about who else could be on that list. Could Paul Pierce be on a list like that? Um, I hope his GM decisions are more more uh, level than his media takes. <laughs> be, because um, we're still on the um, the subject of trades and and front office moves for Ainge, I think we need to talk about the trades that were almost made but not made. One of which yes. was in 2014, Danny almost traded for Kevin Love, but did not. And I think we're all thankful that that happened. Who is um, he going to give up? Do we remember? I don't have that in my notes. I don't remember. 
The one the one that I remember is before the Garnett trade, the Celtics were really trying to pair Pierce with Iverson. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't remember who we were talking about giving up, but I always thought that was going to be a terrible combination. And I still think that yeah. would have been a terrible combination. That was when AI was that before he played for Denver? Yeah, or? that was before he had left Philly, I think. In 2005, Danny almost traded Paul Pierce for the rights to rookie Chris Paul. That would have been interesting. That would have been interesting. I wonder how Doc Rivers would have handled uh, Iverson. Iverson played for Larry Brown, and you know, a lot of guys have had bad relationships with Larry Brown, a lot of players. Um, and I just don't know if Iverson ever had the right coach to handle him. And I wonder if Doc Rivers could have been that kind of a guy. I mean, I I don't I don't think it was a matter. I just didn't think Pierce and Iverson were complimentary players. They were both. Yeah, I agree. Guys that wanted I totally agree. That that was the problem I had with it. I, it wasn't like, yeah, that was, it really just boiled down to that. It, I just don't fundamentally believe you get two ball dominant guys to be your two best players. It's a good strategy. I agree. Two other, and, I, and I wonder. I wonder. Doc Rivers was able to get. Paul Pierce to go from being a ball dominant player to a complete team player before KG and Ray Allen showed up. Pierce changed his game back then to average more assists to really understand that his pass leads to the next pass. And instead of being the guy who wants to make all the decisions with the ball in his hands to either score or get it to the guy who's open so he can finish. That's true. And yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Doc, you know, I, you have to credit Doc Rivers for that in his time with Pierce because he he led Pierce with some really terrible teams, and Pierce was struggling with that after being with Twan, and and that was working for a little bit back in two thousand three, and then O'Brien left, Rivers took over. There was some some rough years there oh, for there Pierce, and, and that trend within those years he transitioned his game, um, and I wonder if he could have done if Rivers could have done the same with Iverson, um, maybe to extend his career or allow him to be more of a team guy, but I totally agree on paper. It doesn't look good. I just, I'm curious about if the coach could have been the key to unlock that. All right, let's keep it moving here. Um, two other almost trades that are draft related. Danny almost traded Al Jefferson and a number one pick for Robert Swift because he was enamored oh, no, with Robert happened. Swift. Never there would be no KG trade without big Al. And then of course, more recently, uh, I, Danny was in love with Justice Winslow, uh, who went, uh, who, and he was trying to get the number nine pick from Charlotte. They ended up picking Frank Kaminsky so that he could select Winslow for six picks, including four number ones uh, in 2005. And that would have included the Jalen Brown pick as well. Did not make the move. Was it, was it the Jalen Brown? It was definitely the um, yeah. young pick. I I recall Jalen Brown being one of those picks because he was sending future Brooklyn picks. Yeah, no, I think once. you're right. I think you're right. I think it was. I think it was both. It may have been both the Jalen and the James Young picks. It was okay. insane. Anything else? So I mean, every GM has has deals they they're glad they did not make, um, and uh, that's part of the luck involved in all of this. Any other burning thoughts on trades or front office coaching hires? Yeah, Adam, you made a good point of mentioning some of the people who've kind of come up underneath Ainge, like Zarin, like Daryl Morey, who's one executive of the year. Um, one name we forgot to mention is Lawrence Frank, who has done a great job. He moved over from being assistant coach 
to assistant GM during his time with Doc and Danny, and I think has transitioned well into the role, obviously well enough for the Clippers to give him the head personnel decision-making job and kind of take that away from Doc. When Doc first came to the Clippers, he was doing both coaching and that lead personnel decision-making basketball ops position. So the Redheads is doing well. all right over there in L.A. Tom Thibodeau, Thibodeau as well. Yeah. I don't know how much. Tibbs, Tibbs was in Houston first. Yep. Josh, how much credit do you give a GM versus a coach for filling out the coaching staff? Um, sometimes the GM is going to have a guy they want to hire and they tell the head coach, I'm hiring this guy. He's going to be on your staff and you can fill out the rest of the staff. But I think most of the time the head coach picks their staff. Okay. Um, and, and depending on the relationship with the GM, you know, there's, there's both opinions involved in that decision. Didn't Ron Adams have a short tenure with the Celtics too? Yeah. It, it was um, Brad Stevens' first year. It was kind oh, of yeah, like yeah. a mentoring role. And then he went over to the Warriors. Not a bad um, decision. All right. So let's move but Ron on. But Adams, Ron, Ron Adams is a perfect example of one of those coaches who's, who's been around forever. He coached at Fresno State for a minute too. Like oh. these guys have been around forever. And um, it's not hard to become a a long time 30 year assistant coach and never be a head coach. Um, so anytime you got a young coach like Brad Stevens, you want to have the OGs next to him on the bench. Ron Adams was that for him. Let's shift to talking about Danny's draft record. When thinking about the draft, I've always felt like I, I wish there was sort of like a, an average draft percentage of hits versus misses based on expectations of draft um, pick. Uh, maybe you could even weight that by the some metric related to the um, the quality of each draft. Um, but but this question of like what should the expectations of a GM in a draft be, depending on the the where they're picking, and there really isn't any good research out there. Uh, there's definitely some articles about expectations of production by pick. There's a great one focusing on win shares per 48 minutes that I'll talk a little bit about. Um, there have also been no articles that I can find that compare front office, office executives to each other um, with a foundation on analytics around picks or, or quantitative data. So like we're, we're simply kind of adding to the canon of insufficient research here. Um, but what I've done is I've taken that wind share um, research. And then there's also been some interesting, there's an interesting article on um, 82 games. That's that is old data. It's from 2008. Uh, but it talks about average career stats by draft pick number and breaks them up into whether there it's a star, solid player, a role player, deep bench, bust, or did not play based on pick. Um, so I can talk about that um, briefly and then to give some context to then looking at Danny Ainge's draft, uh, draft track record. Would that make sense, Mike? Could, well, uh, could I? So I wrote down, with doing none of that research, a short list of people that I thought were the best draft picks from Danny's tenure and worst draft picks. And these are not fully comprehensive lists, but can I just shout them out real quick? And then you can tell me whether, whether or not they track with what you actually, your, the analytics you looked at? Um, yes, let's do that. <laughs> and can we, do you have it by, by um, draft? that Ainge was involved in, like by year? Uh, I don't have the year noted. Oh, I, I do. Let me shout it out. Let me, let's, let me do it your way, but I'll shout it out. So in 2003, 
And I just made note of. Oh, like, I didn't go year by year anyway, so that's. I fine. went year by year. Do you want to do that? Sure. Let's do it quickly. Let's do it quickly. Um, go for it. And I'm just gonna. I, this is not every single um, draft pick. There may have been like a late first, second round pick that didn't make it. I'm not adding this to to the list. It's sort of like the higher picks and the ones where um, he may have uh, gotten some value for where he was picking. So in 2003, Marcus Banks at 13, Kendrick Perkins at 27. Did they, either of those make your list? Nope. So I had Perk at 27. I thought he got, he got pretty good value from Perk. So let me just give some context to this. So when you're picking 27th, um, 60% of those picks are going to be a deep bench player. 5% will be busts. 25% will be a role player. Only 10% will be a star or a solid player. So if you're getting a role player compared to the 25% chance of, of doing so, instead of the 60% chance of getting a deep bus, deep bench, um, that's a great pick. So I think that Perkins is a, is a strong pick there. The next year, Al yeah. Jefferson at 15, and Delonte West at 24, and Tony Allen at 25. I had TA. Okay. Similar place with similar stats. Josh, were you going to say something about Perk or about this? Those two years in general were, were I, I think, A's. Maybe not A-pluses, but a grade of an A for Ainge in terms of drafting. Um, I think Pick is a perfect a Perk is a Perkins is a perfect example <laughs> of value at 27. I mean, Delonte West and Tony Allen, Tony Allen especially having a better career at 23, 24. Those are great picks. Even Al Jefferson at 15 because he got you KG and and was an up and coming trade piece. I mean, that's huge. At that time, I think Al Je- we thought Al Jefferson was going to be better than he ended up being. The, the game changed around him, and I don't know that he worked as hard on defense and, and improving his, his yeah. skills beyond post-play offensively as, as he should have. But if you're picking 15th where we got him, you have a 25% chance of getting either a star or a solid player combined. 30%, which is the highest, is going to be a role player. And then 40% chance you're, you're getting a deep bench or a bust. Um, so the, I think he was better than a role player. So I would put him in the solid player category, not star, even though I think he got traded as a rising star. That's a, definitely a win. And yeah, those are Danny wonder, Ainge's first two drafts coming yep. into the job, hitting home runs in both. I wonder how we'd feel about Jefferson if Kevin McHale didn't gift KG to us uh, around that package. But yeah, I, I, yeah, which is why I which is why I didn't include him because I always thought we were stealing KG at the time and nothing about the rest of Jefferson's career suggested otherwise. He would have been a guy that Danny Ainge would have had to make a difficult decision about of whether he was going to trade him away for something else um, in order to not pay him that contract like he did with Tuan, like he did with Isaiah Thomas. Al Jefferson would have fit into that category, I believe. Um, I think even part of that is, is the contract that Jalen Brown got recently, which was not a max. On any other team, Jalen Brown would be holding out for a max, I bet, and would get it. And, you know, Danny Ainge was amazing to not give him that um, and to really give him what he, what Danny felt he was worth instead of giving in. Um, in 2005, Danny Ainge selected Gerald Green at 18 and Ryan Gomes at 50. Uh, any of those pique your interest? Nope. <laughs> we love Gomes, Gomes at 50 though. isn't bad I, I, mean, I no I mean it's a, it doesn't qualify for a best of it's it's a solid pick 06 we make a trade for the 21, 21st pick and select Rajon Rondo and then there's also another trade where we get Telfair and give up Randy Foy and 
Rafe LaFrance and Theo Ratliff were yeah, involved. Yeah, nothing in involved well. in any of that made my best of list. But Rondo <laughs> did. Rondo, Rondo was. Uh, Rondo at this, 21 is a phenomenal pick. Yeah. And this exemplifies one of Danji, Danny Ainge's uh, patterns, I think, that you can find, where, where you look at Telfair, these small guards, Marcus Banks, um, you know, guys who are small, quick. Are you going to name um, anyone supposed that to be was able good? To defend. <laughs> Rondo is in that category. IT is in that category. He likes small dynamic guards or small, uh, really athletic defensive guards. And that's kind of what Rondo was supposed to be, is a, a great defensive athletic point guard um, that's potentially undersized. You know, and, and Danny would fall for those guys or was trying, it seemed, to find guys like that. Because if you can't have Allen Iverson, you can, uh, you, you can find someone who can defend him. 07, that's the Jeff Green picked five, traded for Ray Allen uh, draft. I, I recall Danny Ains came out and said he, was, he would have taken Durant over Greg Oden. Danny's a great uh, spin master with the media, so who knows if that is true or not. But uh... Yeah, though that, that's another thing that kind of blends across the, the, I mean, the draft picks a little bit and the, the trades. But that that spin, he's always pumping up the value of his assets, and he's always framing them in the most positive possible light, which allows him to do things like that trade of Jeff Green for uh, for Memphis Grizzlies number one pick. Even though I'm sure deep down he was like, "This guy cannot play." <laughs> Two thousand eight, we we draft J.R. Giddens at number thirty. Ouch. Yeah, that one made my list. No, <laughs> that one did not make my list. I mean, number thirty, you're not expecting to get a really good player. No, he didn't. He didn't not. make any of my lists. Um, 2009 only drafted Lester Hudson at 58. Who cares? 2010, Avery Bradley at number 19. He was not again, on my again list. Again, that small, probably should have been. Yeah, he's again, you know, one of those small, quick, athletic, defensive point guards, basically. Right, another one of those guys. Do you guys like that Danny Ainge had that pattern of getting those kinds of guys? Mike, you described it before as like that's his sweet tooth. Yeah, um, I I think he goes into that bag a bit too often. I, I think he overvalues that skill set, especially when it's an undersized guy. I think I think he probably sees it as like a um, what's the word a market inefficiency. People often do what I'm about to say, which is say that get those guys are are often too small to be as useful as you ideally want at the, at those positions, or they're kind of these tweeners that can't quite bring you everything you need, either offensively or defensively or both uh, to make sense on the court. And he tries to get guys that are undervalued accordingly. Um, But I think sometimes they're just undervalued for a reason or properly valued. (laughs) You at the number 19 pick where he got Avery Bradley, uh, you have a 50% chance of getting a deep bench player, which is greater than the chances you'll get a better player than that. Um, I, I agree that Danny definitely likes players who play like himself, these gritty defensive oriented smaller guards. I think he thinks that he, you can get value on the court from, um, undersized players, but, uh, I, I mean, it's, I, I've never really thought about, I don't come down on whether I like it or dislike it. It's just kind of part of Danny. And, um, I think it's helped as much as it has hurt. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, I think I think Avery in retrospect probably should have been a, in the best draft pick list for me. Um, he, I was so excited about him. Like when 
Ray Allen was injured and he came in and had, was so disruptive as a defensive player. What was that his second season, I think? Um, and then he hurt his shoulder. And he really like never kind of got on the same trajectory after he had those shoulder issues. Um, I, I, I remember just being like, oh, yeah, start this guy over the Hall of Famer for sure. <laughs> I loved him in the draft, too. He was one of those players. Danny's also got draft related. He's got a tendency to um, pick players based on their high school high school status. Exactly. <laughs> if they're a top player in high school, like like Romeo is a great recent example of that. Um, Danny and puts Tatum. a lot of emphasis on that. And Tatum. <laughs> yep. And Avery Bradley was one of those. He was like the number, he was a top three player, I want to say, in high school and, and then slipped in the draft. Because he had an ankle injury. So, yep. and kind of like Romeo, like it's yep. very similar. Yeah. So 2011, he selects Juwan Johnson at, I think, 26. And he was Etuan on my worst Moore. draft pick list. <laughs> <laughs> Aforementioned Etwan Moore at 55. Um, neither of those made the list for me. 2012, Jared Sullinger at 21. He was on my worst and, of list. R.I.P. Fab Mello. Yeah, 22. so was he, which I felt very guilty about. <laughs> <laughs> feel guilty about talking about him? About l- listing him as one of Danny's worst picks <laughs> when he's passed away. <laughs> Sorry, Fab. Sorry, Fab. It's not your fault. Uh, 2013, Danny traded up for Kelly Olynyk. This is also on my worst pick. of, only, yep. because, only because we could have gotten the Greek freak. 2014, Marcus Smart at number six and James Young at number 17. One good, one bad. So I want to give some uh, some relative value based on win share per forty eight, based on one of these this article um, that uh, related to the the, the first the, the um, lottery. Um, so if you are the number one pick, you have an average win share of point one four, and I want to give some context to that. Let me actually share. So number the number two pick is a point around point one zero. Number three, just above 0.10. Four is right around there, too. So first four picks, you're talking a 0.113 to 0.10. And when you look at the players in the league right now that that are uh, averaging 0.13, you're talking about uh, Max Kleber, Maxi Kleber, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Trey Young, Serge Ibaka, Fred Van Vliet. These are like the top... The, the like number 50 around their top um, win share per 48 list. Marquez, Chris, um, there's some good players and some decent players on there. And then the 0.10 list is like Jordan Clarkson, Evan Fournier, Miles Turner, Derek White, Jamal, Jamal Murray. Um, so it's not like you're with a top four pick. You're talking about ensuring you have the best players. Marcus Smart, who was number six, he's a, 0.115. So that's like strong value for that area. And as you move down um, in the lottery, uh, it becomes so much more of a crapshoot. Around number 10 to 14, you're talking about a, a 0.09 to a 0.07. And those are fringe players in the NBA. You're talking Chris Dunn, Robert Covington. Dennis Schroeder, PJ Tucker, Marcus Morris is on there, Langston Galloway, Alec Burks, all the way down to Trevor Ariza, Jeff Teague, Trey Lyles. Um, so the fact that Danny has done as well as he has with the number of, of lower picks that he has is unbelievably impressive. And when he has had the opportunity to get some of the higher picks, which we're getting into now, starting with Smart, 
he has nailed them. So 2014 Smart and James Young, anything to say about them? Yeah, I mean, the decision to take Marcus Smart instead of Julius Randle, or I believe the Lakers made that decision for us, one pick ahead of us, and, and let Smart fall to us. Uh, you know, it was just such a blessing, I think, for Celtics fans to be able to get not only a guy who exemplifies Celtics pride on the court, and but, you know, is has the perfect name for Boston fans to yell and scream from the stands. You know, it's just, it was a, it was, it was an ideal scenario. Yeah. I really like Smart coming out of college as well. And I mean, he just sets the tone for everybody Yeah, just, defensively. Yeah. Just to refresh your memory, that was... So that was uh, the draft where Andrew Wiggins, Jabari Parker were the uh, clear-cut one and two before the season started. Joel Embiid kind of stampeded to the front of that and then got injured. Um, so those are the guys that went one, two, and three. Orlando had the fourth pick. Utah had the fifth pick. They took Aaron Gordon and Dante Exum, respectively. And then we could have taken Julius Randle uh, or someone like Dario Saric, who was actually talked about potentially that early. Um, Zach Levine went in that draft. We could have been so lucky. Uh, <laughs> uh, but we ended up with Smat. All right, 2015, we take Terry Rozier at the 15th pick, and then RJ Hunter at 28, Jordan Mickey at 33. Um, I did look at that draft in my research just to see if I could call Terry Rozier one of our worst picks, but there was no one after him that merited taking, so I did not. And at the time, the, the fandom did not, did like not that love pick. it, and Danny Ainge said, wait, you're going to like this guy. And he turned out to and be solid. Adam, do you think... Do you think the Celtics should have drafted my seven-footer, my guy, Robert Upshaw, out of Fresno State that year instead of Terry Rozier? Uh, did anybody take him, Josh? Nobody took him, no. He's, <laughs> he's overseas now. He, he, his personal problems got in the way. Um, yeah, well, let but, me pose you the question to you. You knew him better than anyone. Um, I would have liked to see him take a chance on my guy. He said he liked him. He said he liked him. Danny Ainge, Ainge told Robert, Robert Upshaw that he liked him. Yeah, after according to Robert. After. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, he could have signed him as a free agent a number of different times. Yeah, I was at the draft party at his house. That we took Rosier. I was upset at the time, and then I warmed up to Rosier. I liked him. I thought he had some value. I thought he played really well in the playoffs for us uh, when Kyrie went down, and I was higher on Rosier for most of his tenure than I think both of you guys for sure than you, Mike, because I know you hate him. Um, and I think, you know, Danny did the same thing he did with him that he did with a lot of these other guys where you've, you've developed under us. Now you're actually too good for what we want to pay you. So we're going to get rid of you. 2016, Jalen Brown at number three, Gershon Yabuselli at 16, Ante Zizic at 23. And then we traded two high second rounders for the pick that ended up being uh, a potential Matisse Teibel pick last year. Yeah, I mean, Jalen was a great pick. Um, I think it deserves, it's aged well, very, yes. very well. Uh, and it was far from a clear-cut choice. That was a Ben Simmons, Brandon Ingram draft. And then there were about six different players that were in discussion for that number three spot, including Dennis Smith Jr., including um, the two guys that McDonough drafted, both of which are 
journeyman already. Uh, what are that? Marquise Chris and uh, Dragon yeah, Bender. Dragon Bender, yeah. Um, Jamal Murray was in the conversation as well. So I'm very happy with the one we took. And I think, Adam, at the time, you and I were discussing favorite players, and I'm pretty sure I changed my mind on a weekly basis. <laughs> mm-hmm. But mostly between either Brown or, or Murray. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, both would have been good picks. Yeah, I definitely didn't want Dennis Smith Jr. I remember that very, <laughs> feeling that very strongly at the time. 2017, Robert Williams at number 27. Good I'm, value there, but we don't know. Yeah, I'm, really I'm hopeful. Yep. Hopeful. Uh, 2018, Jason Tatum. I mean, so at 27, Rob Williams, I mean, that's a that's a strong pick, I would say. You got a 60% chance of getting a deep bench player. I don't I'd call him already better than that. I yeah. I don't I don't think he's been consistent enough that you can say that yet. Like okay. we we need him to stay healthy and perform. He's had he's shown really really promising glimpses. Well, I agree. If he, if he does nothing else in his career, you wouldn't be saying that, Adam. Yeah, it's the 27th pick. All right, 2018, that's Jason Tatum situation. So we trade faults for the number one pick for Tatum and what turns out to be Romeo the next year. Obviously, we talked about that, an amazing pick. And just like maybe the best example of Danny's eye for talent in drafting. Right, this is one of his top three moves overall, right? I mean, what are his best moves? Tatum's got to be in that. Tatum and Romeo for, for that trade. It's, yeah, it's Garnett. Uh, the and it's the um, the Brooklyn trade for the picks, and then I think Tatum. Tatum. Yeah, and Josh and I are already on record saying that uh, Tatum and Langford will prove to be the best trade ever made. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So 2019, last year, we take Romeo at 14, uh, Grant Williams at 22, Tremont Waters at 51. We trade Matisse Tybel at number 20 for Aaron Baines and Carson Edwards, um, and I. Th- I think we got a 2020 number one out of that as well. So yeah, Matisse and Baines for Carson Edwards and a 2020 number one. I that that still stings, um, and I, I will never be over it because I miss you, Aaron Baines. I miss Aaron Baines, and uh, could have done with a little less Carson Edwards in my life so far. But and and giving up Matisse Thibel, you guys don't want to bash Ainge for that. Yeah, that's that's the wrong move. He we don't want to overreact, or we do want to overreact to that. We could have had Matisse Thibel. Yeah, I think he's a, a, a strong uh, role player. He's in your rotation starting in rookie year. I think he's a great defensive player. He's got a, a developing three-point shot. He's got good size. I, I think you know, even with all of the wings that we have, I, I would have been good with it. And there was, there was more to this. Uh, he, he was trying to sign Horford. He needed to get rid of Baines. He had to trade the pick. He clearly fell in love with Carson Edwards. Uh so out of all of these, out of these 17 drafts, and maybe we're at, maybe we uh, remove the last one, but I've got 11 strong picks. Um, there's a handful of busts in there as well. But to me, this is a strong draft record. Again, it's hard to, to identify this when you're not comparing it to other players. Any um, burning final thoughts on draft? Um, other things you want to say about this, this portion of what we've been discussing? No, we got to figure out how, if he's number one or not. How does this all stack up? Okay, so um, let's talk about some of the other uh, contenders for the executive spot. Um, Josh, let, let me go to you here. Is there a, an executive that you would like to, before you say where they stack up, you'd just like to talk about 
um, briefly what they what they've done, what their track record is, what what goes into your evaluation of them? Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I look at this recency bias. I want to know what they've done in the last three years, and it makes it Whoa. difficult. Why three years? It makes it um, because the NBA has changed dramatically in the last three years, and anyone who we're calling the number one GM in the entire league right now has to have done something within that time period and changed with the league. And R.C. Buford and Pat Riley, to an extent, have not done that. And um, it's even though they're legends and they need to be, I think they would be, you know, one, two, three with Danny Ainge. Um, if for so, not give me a, give me an exact. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about R.C. Buford and Pat Riley. Okay, so pick one. So let's talk about Pat Riley. Okay, so Miami president coach in '95. So he starts his executive reign in 1995. He trades for Alonzo Mourning. He gets Tim Hardaway. Um, he drafts Dwayne Wade. He gets Shaq to Miami. Uh, he has the big three with LeBron. He hires Coach Spo. He drafts Bam Adebayo, um, Jimmy Butler. I think he gets credit for having five rings. Uh, five is sorry. Five. He's got five rings as a coach in the eighties, and then two thousand six and three as an executive. Yeah, three, three as a Heat. Yeah. Yeah. So 2012, 2013, He he's able to put those rings and his his big brass balls on the on the table when he's in a free agent meeting. Um, he's a complete icon. Uh, everybody views him as the the epitome of cool. Um, he's great at motivating huge egos, which you described earlier, Josh. Um, I'm going to give him credit for the weather in Miami as well. That's how good this guy is. He's been doing it for decades with different teams, and I got to give him credit for doing it with different teams. So, really, and, and let me just be clear: I don't mean like I mean like with Miami. He's he's recreated the team multiple times. When you look at RC and Pop, it's been one iteration uh, with with Tim Duncan at, at all. Yeah, but they played very different styles over the course of that time and yep. Duncan's role was dramatically different in 2014 than it was in 2005 or seven or nine, whenever they were making their early. I mean, there, there was longevity for RC and pop for sure. And they kept it going with Kawhi and that, that was a tough experience for them from, I'm assuming from their perspective, they would have loved to have kept him um, and kept winning. Uh, they're not, I mean, they're, they're unlikely to make the playoffs this year. Um, and, this looks like the end of a long era, but that era was when you're looking at a front office executives, you're talking about team building. So, so that's my question. So, when we're talking about who's number one, is a is the question really if we had our franchise, who would we want to hire to run it today? In in today's no, era? because then you're dealing with age. Pat Riley's older. I think you're t- you're. I think we're just saying who is the best front office executive in the NBA right now. And best is is subjective to some extent. And so and let's, legendary let's about... status legendary status has to do with that, right? Yeah. And so when yeah. you look at Riley, you described everything that's positive about him. The one thing that I I think most recently he's put together these teams of really good solid role player guys. Um, and the point of doing that, which Danny has kind of led the way with, is you do that in order to rebuild quicker. You rebuild by getting a bunch of those guys. You develop a great culture, the Jay Crowder type of guys. 
And then you got to get rid of some of those guys and make some deals for some stars. And it almost feel, feels like Pat Riley has been content not to trade those guys for stars. Like, why do you, why did you have Justice Winslow on your team for so long? Why do you still have Kelly Olenek on your team? You know, like these guys should have been gone by now. You know, they're, they're, he's got too many guys playing 20 minutes a game and no stars. This is what people were saying about Ainge not trading people in time. And then he pulled the trigger on Kyrie. I, I think I think the G, these GMs wait for the the right move, not just a move, um, and all of the circumstances have to be right. I, by all accounts, Miami's trying to keep their their cap space open for the 2021 free agency so that they can be major players in uh, recruiting Giannis. Yeah, Miami doesn't do it through trade; they do it through free agency, um, and I think that's sort uh, seeking out stars is all Pat Riley does. Um, and he actually, interestingly to me, undervalues draft picks and is willing to trade them more freely than a lot of other GMs. Yeah, him, him and Daryl Morey, I think, both suffer from that. All right. So, so, you, so you guys think he should have kept all these you know, solid, mediocre players for as long as he oh, has no, I think he, the team I, like that? I think the Whiteside contract was a bad one. I thought the Olenek contract – I thought the the Whiteside contract was particularly bad and then the combination of other kind of mid-tier contracts track that they signed all at once with that was was bad i thought that was they they locked themselves in um so in, we, in a non-constructive way and and couldn't do much for a couple of years we're, also we're, Bosch retiring early yeah surprised them that definitely did um i i'm not going to nitpick about um having a middle of the road team with jimmy butler on it and not trading those stars for i mean those uh, role players for stars that like you're not even giving a deal like I, i'm fine with what riley's been doing here i i he ended up pretty relatively high on my list uh, but let's talk about some others anything else on pop and rc they they got a lot of credit for picking tony parker late in the first round and ginobili at i think number 56 late in the second round um yeah i think i, I mean think it, they get a lot of credit or deserve a lot of credit for you know, you made a comment about Ainge having a, a fantastic track record of getting high value while picking late. I think the Spurs made, you know, made two decades of that. Um, they they got yeah. extreme value late late in the draft, and that they combined that with you know absolute top tier talent um, via Tim Duncan uh, and and European. And, right, and they were at the forefront of European recruitment. Yep. Um, that's a great point, Josh. Um, yeah, so they get a ton of credit for that. I, you know, I don't think they were real needle movers on the trade front or anything like that. Um, Co- Coach Pop is talk about legend status, uh, but I think you're right, Josh, as well that they are. You know, uh, no, no country for old men, as the movie title said, um, they, they're kind of on the, on the downslope. Uh, right. So as, as we transition to maybe talking about some of these younger guys or guys like Bob Myers, Messiah Ujiri, like the up and coming guys, the next legends, potentially, uh, I, I want to be careful not to rank them higher than these legends, you know, because that would, that would be foolish for us to, to be like, okay, so because of recency bias, R.C. Buford and and uh, Pat Riley are all of a sudden like fifth and sixth on our list. I hope you guys aren't going to do that. But at the same time, I don't think they compare to the other legend on the list who's been doing it for as long, uh, yeah, Danny I, Ainge, I think, who's been who's been doing it recently as well within the last three years. Yeah, I think it would just be different 
different definitions of how we're ranking it. We will find out. Before we move on from um, Pop and RC, do I get to take points away because they got lucky in the draft with Tim Duncan where the Celtics had the highest chance no, of these getting are just sour green tinted grapes. <laughs> uh, yeah, fully. They're still very sour. I mean, you know, in hindsight, the, the Tim Duncan with Rick Pitino probably would not have worked out. I, I would not have wanted that for Tim Duncan. Mike, can you and I talk about Sam Presti for a minute? Yeah. Uh, um, I loved his, his, obviously, I think he gets a lot of credit for picking uh, Durant, Westbrook, and Harden. He had high picks and he nailed them. Um, and I absolutely love the Westbrook Paul pick where he added four number one picks and the Paul, Paul George pick where he added seven picks. Um, these are just trade, like trade the trade. Yeah. yeah. And, where, and Danilo Gallinari and Shea Gilgis Alexander, by the yep. way, <laughs> I, that team is set up with, with a greater than Brooklyn level of picks for the, from what the Celtics had, like those deals are better than the Garnett deal, in my opinion. And it's not impossible, especially with the way this season is going, for Paul George and Kawhi Leonard to leave after next season. Yep, um, exactly. And the Clippers to fall apart and those picks to be just as valuable as the Brooklyn picks proved to be for the Celtics. So I, I'm with you. I totally love those trades. They were brilliant. And I mean, you know, what I think really, one of the things that really defines the quality of a GM to me is... Um, you know, not what do you do when all the the cards are are kind of shuffled in your favor? If AKA Rob Palinka, like you get no credit for anything in my mind. Um, all you all you have to do is not totally blunder, and you couldn't even do that for two years. Um, <laughs> and and, this, but, and Oklahoma City, they're making the playoffs this year. They're tied for fifth yeah. seed. They're going to continue uh, as a playoff team and as and. Uh, while getting all of these draft picks. Yeah, so they but last offseason they went from a disappointing loss in the playoffs but thinking that they had a recent MVP and a you know, top 10ish two-way player in Paul George that they were going to just have to kind of tighten tighten their roster around get totally blindsided by Paul George asking to be traded and over to the Clippers and convert that into 8 million and 11 <laughs> new first round picks. Um, and one of the, the best young up and coming players in Shea Gillis Alexander and cap flexibility, like, well, a, a degree of cap flexibility, despite Chris Paul's contract. I, it was just a brilliant kind of 180. Presti hasn't been without hiccups. Um, you know, obviously the hardened trade doesn't look good. It didn't look good then, and it, it hasn't aged well. Um, he made some questionable decisions about the the way he kept and and the way that Perk was used uh, when the, the those younger OKC teams were getting to the Western Conference Finals and the Finals. Um, but I, I think Presti is on a very very short list for me. Yeah, he's he was, go ahead, Josh. Presti, uh, a Boston area native, went Emerson. to Concord, Concord Carlisle High School and then no. played it two years at Emerson, Division Three. Presti ranked above Daryl Morey for me. Morey, one-time executive really? of the year. Yep. Me too, uh, me too. Despite the Harden trade and I think the D'Antoni signing, which I love, and, and his analytics movement, um, 
it hasn't felt like a tremendous amount of additional amazing accolades uh, or things to speak about related to his tenure there. I like him a lot. You know, we're talking the, the top of the, the cream of the crop here. Uh, you yeah, guys know I what think... his nickname was? No. His nickname in high school, the, his, his high school teammates called him Bob Sura. Who, Daryl Morey? No, Sam Presby. Oh, you're still reading about Sam Presti and not listening to the rest of us. I see. <laughs> um, so Presti for me, I think it, it has to be factored in that he's operating in a small market that yeah. generally you look at everybody else on this list. Um, and aside from, well, obviously Poppin Buford did it in a small market forever. So extra, extra points on the legend status there. Uh, Ujiri was in Denver, which is a smallish market. Um, but not as small as OKC. Presti's the only one on here. Um, just look side side by side with Houston and OKC. Uh, both Presti and Maury started in their positions at the same time, in effect. They've been at it for 12 seasons, started in June 2007. They both have nine appearances in the playoffs over that period. Three, three misses overall. Um, but OKC has gotten to the Western Conference Finals two more times than Houston and, and has gotten to the finals once where Houston hasn't gotten to the finals at all. So I actually came away from this exercise. Basically, I think Maury would be at the bottom of my list of this, of these top tier guys. And I never would have guessed that. Yeah. Why wouldn't you have guessed that? I, feel, I don't feel like, you know, they've been to one Western conference finals in his time there. That's it. I feel like they've underachieved in the playoffs. They've been to when, two Western conference finals. Back, when you back. think of the when you think okay. of the the like most innovative the most um, mentioned GMs who are doing a great job, he's been I feel like top five on the list for a number of years, um, but he's not making our top five here, and so that's what makes that interesting to me. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, we got Presti, we got Morey, uh, Wait, one, one more thing about Presti. Yeah. How much? How much of it was his fault that he wasn't able to keep the three superstars together in Oklahoma City? It wasn't necessarily his fault, but he could have made different. Like, what if he had traded Westbrook instead of Harden? Or, or had he? Wasn't there a contract that he signed of someone else? That it was, I think it was Perkin. I think it was Perk. I think they they took an extended yeah. Perk or something. Um, yeah, so there, there's different ways he could have played that, and I, I'm sure if you got some truth serum into him, he would he would reveal what he'd prefer to have done had he had perfect information. But okay, let's move on. Uh, Mike Masai Ujiri, I think you did some research on him. Obviously, he's been um, uh, he's one one time executive of, of the year. He he did a good job in Denver, and then came to Toronto, and has been killing it. So. I think the coolest thing I discovered that I didn't realize about Masai Ujiri, he's been an executive for, uh, since 2010, he was an executive, the lead executive in Denver for three seasons, uh, 2010 to 2013. And now it's been, I think this is six going on seven this year in Toronto, never missed the playoffs as an executive. Hmm. No other guy on this list can say that, um, which is, crazy to me and it's even more impressive when you look at the the playoff histories for both denver and toronto denver as soon as he left went into like a five-year playoff slump toronto hadn't been in the playoffs for about 
three or four or five years and then has not missed it since he got there. Um, I don't think that can, I'm sure there are some other factors at play, like him knowing when to leave a team and knowing what team hmm. to go to, but <laughs> uh, it, it can't be pure coincidence. Um, he's won a championship. He's won his, a championship. His draft record is great. He's, he's drafted with the Raptors, DeLon Wright, Pascal Siakam, Jakob Hodel, OG Ananobi, while signing Fred Van Vliet as a free agent. And Podol was the highest selection there at ninth. He also signed Evan Fournier and Kenneth Fareed when he was in Denver. Uh, not superstars, but solid picks. Um, he that also deal, we got to talk about that Kawhi deal because that was a we, risky. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, can we get before that? I'll actually argue that it wasn't as risky, uh, but um, so I think the greatest trade, actually, no. Definitively, <laughs> the greatest trade that Musai Ujiri made was trading Andrea Bargnani for a first round <laughs> draft pick. Uh, yeah. You know who that first round draft pick t- turned out to be? I can't who? remember. Jakob Podol. Oh, wow. So he very indirectly basically turned Andrea Bargnani into, uh, I don't know, 40% of the Kawhi Leonard trade. Um, <laughs> with because he had inherited demar derozan derozan was already there and uh so just unbelievable i mean that he he didn't make a ton of trades he traded carmelo um when he was in denver and got he traded carmelo and chauncey and got like that whole kind of poo-poo platter of players from the knicks um but not a not a major trade legacy great drafts as you said and uh some some real cojones to make the decisions he's made with the Raptors so I mean so I, I let's talk about this Kawhi deal because I, I do think that was somewhat risky I, I I've got a close friend Gordon who I was talking to who's a huge Raptors fan lives in Toronto and Gordon was not a fan of that he did not want uh to risk having Kawhi leave after a year and I kept telling him this is going to increase your chances of winning the championship that is worth it even if he were to leave in a year um and that team was not 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 going to win a championship without that deal. So why not go for it? Um, and I think it proved right. Yeah. Well, here's why. I mean, I, people were saying this at the time. I, I'm not going to say anything remotely revolutionary here. Uh, but you know, Denver or Denver, uh, Toronto was coming off what basically two or three years of more or less the exact same kind of playoff story. Like they had increasingly promising regular seasons, then they would get into the playoffs and DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry to an extent would kind of underperform uh, or, I mean, DeRozan pretty consistently substantially underperformed in the playoffs and they would have a disappointing first or second round exit. So at, at the time they made the trade, like, Ujiri knew he had to shake something up and he had been waiting for an opportunity to shake something up. So I think from where he was sitting, it probably didn't feel like a huge risk. It was like a Mm -hmm. nice, comfortable way for him to start dismantling the team. And it had a high, high potential reward, but the risk was much lower for the Raptors and someone like the Celtics who would have had to decide, were trying to decide, would it be worth it to increase our odds for a championship and give up, you know, someone like Jalen Brown, who could be a really, really strong asset for the 
under our control, you know, under, on our roster for the next 12 years or whatever. Um, so I always thought it was kind of relatively lower risk, but with still high potential reward for the Raptors, but still a great move. Um, anything else on Toronto? Yeah, I think, I think this year's team is going to determine a lot about this. I think the fact that Pascal Siakam is playing as well as he is, that that team is, is number two in the standings in the East and one of the six teams that has a shot to win the title this year. I think that matters a lot. And, and so if Masai can keep going like this, that's what makes it most impressive after losing Kawhi. I also think... Adam, I got a... Oh, go ahead, Josh. I got a question for you, Adam. What does your boy in Toronto think of, of the trade now and the championship that, they, that he won? Was it worth it? Yeah, it was worth it. And um, then... I think, I think he wants to root for a team with players that are going to stay. But he he admits now reluctantly that it was worth it. He definitely enjoyed still, the championship, and they're still on top. I mean, they're they're right. the the reason for that. I think partially is the decision that Masai Ujiri correctly made to uh, a very difficult decision to get rid of Dwayne Casey and to hire Nick Nurse. Um, mm. And I think that that's that's something that can't be understated. That's one of his best moves. Because that, I mean, that coach was the guy who got them to the playoffs every year, and they had some very good teams some, that won a lot of games. Um, and it's difficult to do that. Kind of similar to Bob Myers' decision yeah. to get rid of Mark Jackson. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we've left these two guys to talk about last. That's a great point. I was just going to make that exact transition, and let me let me run down the laundry list of Bob Myers' moves here, and and then once I'm done, you guys can. Pick what you want to react to. So you mentioned you fired Mark Jackson, who brought them to a certain place in 2014. Hired Steve Kerr, clearly the right decision. It's I'm I'm so impressed that Nurse is doing as well as he is. I, I mean I certainly didn't know enough about him, but he's he's one of the top coaches in the league now. But Bob Myers, so good. That's crazy. Bob Myers, two-time executive of the year um, since 2012-13. So he's only been doing it for seven or eight years, though he doesn't get credit for drafting Curry. Myers was on board for the selection of Clay Thompson at number 11, Harrison Barnes 7th, and Draymond Green at 35. Um, Festus Ezeli was picked number 30. He played a role um, in a championship team, even though he's not in the league anymore. Kevon Looney at 30 uh, in 2015. Josh's favorite, Eric Pascal in 2019. He signed the following role players. David West, Zaza Pachulia, Nick Young, my guy, DeMarcus Cousins, JaVale McGee, Sean Livingston, Jonas Jerebko, Willie Cauley-Stein. He also signed future talents, but got little production from them. Between like 2017 and 19, he signed Patrick McCaw, Kendrick Nunn, who's now blowing up in, in Miami, Chris Boucher, who's showing some things in, in Toronto, Josh's guy, Georges Niang, Daniel House in um, Houston. Houston. He also negotiated the deal for Andre Iguodala, um, without ending up giving up significant assets. He, he sent a couple picks away, but it ended up being Rodney Hood and Josh Hart. It wasn't, it wasn't hard. Um, then traded him later, Iguodala, that is, to Memphis for a first in 2024, which could be, look nice. Um, on the low, lower profile front, um, he repeatedly added talent on the margins uh, that contributed to the team's three titles in the last four years. I would say he got absolutely lucky regarding um, the cap spike, which allowed him to get Durant and the fact that Curry was on a 
it was like 11 million a year, yeah. a pretty cheap contract because he had had those ankle problems early yep. in his career. Um, so that allowed him to have the space for Durant. So that was just flat out lucky. Um, but uh, even though Durant was leaving, he uh, traded him for D'Angelo Russell and then flipped Russell for Wiggins and a top three protected first in 2021, as well as a second in 2021. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. I mean, he's made a lot of really strong moves and I would argue he's been super lucky. Yeah, uh, you one big move you missed was uh, the Warriors participating in a three-team trade that netted them Igudala in the first place under his under mm-hmm. his tenure, uh, which was obviously huge for them. Um, yeah, no, I mean he's he's certainly been pretty lucky. I I don't know if I would agree with hugely lucky. I mean. They would have had the the luckiest thing that they experienced was the spat, the kite the cap spike. What what else was like hugely lucky for them? It was the he combination was, of the cap spike along with Curry's contract right. at that time and his transcendent play. But beyond that, beyond that, he was lucky by location. Yeah. The Bay Area turned into a hotbed of investment, um, which helped them get Durant. And, you know, that's, that's a piece of it I think we're not really articulating. If you take Durant out, it's still a phenomenal job. And yeah, he's that, a that's kind of contender, what I'm saying. Yeah. But he doesn't have three championships. No, but he probably has two. Anything else on Bob Myers? Not from so me. Let's, Let's take a look at this list. We've got um, Bob Myers, Pat Riley, Danny Ainge, Poppin RC, Masai Ujiri, Sam Presti, Daryl Morey. For me, Ujiri, Presti, and Morey. Morey's at the bottom, and then you've got another tier of Masai Ujiri and Presti. And then my top tier includes RC and Pop, Bob Myers, Danny Ainge, and Pat Riley. Do you guys have a different look at that? Um, I, I think you could make the argument. I see. I keep going back and forth on this. I think it'd be easy to make the argument that Masai Ujiri belongs ahead of uh, R.C. Buford and Pat Riley. Potentially, you could make that argument. And shoot, I may argue with myself on that one. What do you guys think, yeah, well, Mike? What do you think? I, I this is why I think it just depends on on what the real question. You're, like, if I was going to run a team. You know, if I wanted someone to run my team this year or for the next two years or for the next 10 years, uh, I probably wouldn't be picking R.C. Buford pop, right? Like, they, or Pat they, Riley, they I assume. Their fastball. Um, I just, I think my my uh, sunglasses are tinted too green to, to want to hire Pat Riley. He's 75 uh, years old. Yeah, that, there's that as well. But yeah, I I would put, Danny in the the foursome with Bob Myers, Presti, and Ujiri. Presti's probably almost definitely at the bottom of that foursome. This um, is for this for is for future. basically like hiring for like the next five yeah. year window. Let's say, um, I would. If what if we I, look back I, over it would probably their tenure? Be, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this as like over the tenure that this person has had, who has had who has done the best, and as well as like right now, who's the best? Not necessarily in the future. 
Like I, I think that around the league, there seems to be a consensus that Bob Myers is the best because of the success that he's had most recently. Going back 10, 10, 15 years, Pop and RC, I think, get that distinction. I'm I'm surprised at how impressed I am by Riley's tenure. Going back 25 years, uh, three championships as an executive, uh, continually reinventing that team. He's now done it three times. Uh, like, yeah, like, that, but that, he, that he was pop- really successful in the 90s, didn't win a championship, but was really successful in the 90s. And then he did it again with with Shaq and won a championship in 06. And then he reinvented them again for 2012 and 13. And he's now in the process of doing it a fourth time. That's unprecedented. But he's not really in the process of doing it a fourth time because I don't think they're a contender right now. They're not far. Yeah, they're not they're, far. They're one move away from being right in that conversation. So uh, Yeah, but I think you could say he's done it three times. Great. Even three times, that's more than yeah. anybody else on this list. That's more than Ainge? Yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. Ainge, Ainge has done it. Ainge has done you it can count twice. this as the second time. Yeah. Pop and RC did it once. Bob Myers did it once. Now Myers hasn't has as much, had as much time. I mean, nobody uh, nobody argue. else has twenty five years going back. I, th- right. I think I feel like you have to start the clock at where Danny Ainge started. So over the past sixteen seasons. So I feel like Bob Myers gets the consensus vote. I find him to be like to be to part of that value to be based on luck with the cap spike and and what we just just described. So I actually have him in in sort of third place, I would say. Uh, And he's there with Pop and RC because I also feel like they they did it once. And while they they really, I don't think I give them enough credit for transforming the league. Um, And and how many championships did they win? Was it three? Four? Four. No, five. Yeah, five. Yeah. Duncan has five championships. I I have been fighting about whether Danny Ainge or Pat Riley is number one. And I'm wondering if I give enough credit to Pop and RC. Exactly. I think, I think so. I mean, if you're asking what, what is luckier, I think you have to net out the luck in effect because right. RC Buford and Pop got Duncan. Bob Myers had the cap spike. Pat Riley's in Miami. I mean, that's yeah, I, so right. I, like Miami I gave, is why they all went there, right? I gave it's, RC and Pop and Bar- Bob Myers two points for luck, and I gave Riley, Presti, and Ainge one point for luck. And let me, since we're on the topic of luck, I just want to say that part of the reason, supposedly, that uh, Wick Grousebeck and, and the, um, the Celtics Pat front Lucia. office yeah. uh, decided on Danny Ainge is that Red Auerbach called, he was like, you should go with Danny Ainge. That guy's lucky in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So, so none of, neither of you guys are going to argue that Danny Ainge is actually number one. You guys are both in agreement that Danny is not number one. I'm shocked at that. I, uh, I feel very comfortable saying he's in the top three. And then I, I just think it's kind of and so who's out of that choice at that point. Uh, Mori Mori is definitely out of that top three. No, 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 no. Like of the four that we just talked about, Riley, uh, Pop, and R.C. Buford, Bob Myers, and Danny Ainge, who's out of that out of the top three. I mean, I'm not convinced that that foursome is my top four. Oh, really? I, I think Ujiri might be. I 
I'm struggling with what Josh was talking about with Buford. I mean, if we're just looking backwards, yeah, then Buford ha- and Pop have to be in there. So, I mean, then it would be Ainge, Riley, and Buford. And Bob, Myers Bob, would Meyer, be Bob Myers wouldn't be in the conversation. He hasn't. Okay. Oh, Bob wow. Myers hasn't re hasn't changed over a team. That like that's a real test of the metal of a GM. It's, it's what do you mean he hasn't changed? Oh, you he hasn't won and then lost and then won again. Yeah, he hasn't like yeah. reconstituted a team. He like he kind of came in, he drafted some players, and they panned out. <laughs> like he, he, he may be about to though. We'll see. <laughs> we'll we'll see, but and his, we'll see how he does. We'll see yeah. if he if he builds if he can build a championship contender, dismantle it, and successfully build another contender. Like that's what Ainge and Riley and Buford have done. But he, Buford, look, he built, Buford's done it. The he least didn't just, them, though. he didn't just pick some players in the draft and they panned out. I mean, you're talking about second rounders like, like Draymond Green, and then he didn't just do that either. I mean, he he made a very difficult coaching change at a time when it was. I know no, he's obviously being, he's in the short point. list. I'm just saying, like when we, and he's built a culture, not by you himself. Know, he, <laughs> <sighs> By drafting those types of players, by getting the Splash Brothers, he built a culture. So, Josh, would you who's who's your top three? My top like three it, is is Danny Ainge, Bob Myers, and R.C. Buford. Okay, and mine is mine would be Ainge, Riley, and Pop R.C. Yeah, so we have the same top three. Adam, also, yeah. um, and I feel like I'm doing disservice to Bob Myers because I, I do get the feeling around that the, the league has him higher up. This so is, we're I think we're talking about it in a different way than the yeah. league would be. So let me well, let me try and bring this to a close here. So can we the question posed initially was is Danny Ainge the number one front office executive in the NBA? Let me ask you guys this question first. Um is is he top three? Is Danny Ainge top three? Yes, looking absolutely. backwards or looking forward? I think either way, actually, the answer is yes. Yeah, the answer yeah, is yes for me. Okay, he's top so three. he's definitely and he, top three. And, and there's a, there's a piece there's a piece of this that's that I think we haven't really mentioned too much of yet, which is how much does the rest of the league fear that GM when they get a phone call from him or when they're calling him? And I feel like Danny Ainge has a legitimate fear factor of there's a lot of GMs that are either not interested in talking to him or that just straight up say when Danny Ainge calls, don't pick up the phone. You know, because he's going to get the better of the deal. It's like that, the same kind of thing that that used to happen to Red Auerbach. Wouldn't you assume that's true for a lot of these guys that we're talking about? I don't think people are afraid when Popovich calls them or when Bob Myers calls them. No, I think that there's 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 something else going on with Ainge, where you know this this thing that well, he's kind of a snake. I think that yeah. that comes out a little bit in in these ways when he's having conversations, I'm sure there's a lot of conversations that he's had that, you know, he didn't get what he was looking for straight up because the other guy didn't want to make a deal with him. Okay. Let's, let's round this out here. It seems like we're, we're, we're each maybe struggling a little bit with, with exactly what the rank order is part of which has to do with exactly which question are we trying to answer? I want a yes or no answer from, from each of you. We'll all share. Is Danny Ainge the number one front office executive in the NBA? Yes or no? No. Yes. I'm going to say no. There you yes. have it, folks. There you have it. 
so he's, he is he is close, but maybe from, not yeah. exactly. From the staff, he is voted as not the number one GM in the NBA. And so you naysayers, who's your number one? Yeah, exactly. And what argument do you make? Go. I would hire Ujiri over him. And I think that's it. Really? Going forward. Okay, Adam? I just can't convincingly say that he is. There's too much doubt. It, like beyond a reasonable doubt, I can't say yes. So it's got to be a no. I, I I'm just so impressed with with the research I've done on Pat Riley. Bob Myers has a, there's so much to be said for for their work. Pop and RC. I mean, five championships. Danny's won one. Like yeah. At some point, I got to admit that I that I just really want Danny Ainge to be number one, but his track record. Uh, of success doesn't fully support it. All of these other guys, they, Bob Myers has three three championships. Pat Riley's got three. Ainge has one. How do you make Ainge above them based on success? I can't. I you know I can't be arguing Bill Russell's uh, transcendence as a player because of his winning, which is the goal of the game, and then say Danny Ainge is is better than these other guys. So I look forward to a time when we have some women in this conversation as and, uh, speaking of, of diversity within the NBA here. Um, we're going to close out this podcast here. Please uh, subscribe, rate us five stars, send us feedback, keep listening. And uh, kudos to you if you made it this long. Yeah. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Peace out. <laughs>